Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm speaking with Norm Bacall. Norm spent a lot of years as a lawyer, including as managing partner of a Bay Street law firm. These days, he's spending his time mentoring young professionals and writing. It's the latter pursuit that's the focus of our conversation. We talk about what motivates him, who gives him his best advice, what he's looking to achieve as a writer, and how he goes about achieving it. This is his story. All right. Okay. Call. Welcome. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you, Bob? I'm doing good. Thanks for, thanks for joining the fun. I've been looking forward <laughs> to this for a while. So actually, you know what? We should probably start with a bit of a disclaimer, just in the interest of full disclosure. You and I know each other. We work together. We're both partners at Heenan Blakey. You were my boss for a while. Um, in fact, I think you played a, a, an integral role in, in me getting a job in Canada. So thank you for that. I wanted to start the conversation just by getting an understanding of something which seems a little puzzling to me. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative sense, but I'm just intrigued by it. So you have retired from the practice of law. You are presumably, you don't need to work. You did well for yourself. And yet what you're doing is something which involves you putting yourself out there in a, in a fairly vulnerable position, right? Like you are writing things and putting them out there into the world and, you know, getting people to comment on them or, and like them or not like them or whatever. How did you end up deciding rather than just sort of sitting back, relaxing, enjoying retirement, spending time with your grandkids, how did you end up deciding I'm going to write? Well, uh, I suppose uh, part one is I didn't want to go insane. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's funny that you use the word retirement because it, it's, it wasn't how I ever looked at it. And, hmm. uh, and in fact, I read an article a couple of years after I did all this uh, where the, the author was writing about rewirement. Uh, and I'm not sure that the, the word I would use is the problem, but the, the challenge we face as life expectancy gets longer and longer is that if you look at it simply as retirement, where you ride off into the sunset on your horse and, and go camp out on a beach, uh, you can probably well guess that after about three weeks on the beach, if you have a particular type of personality, you're going to begin the process of either going insane or starting to feel very old, which I still don't feel like. I still feel fairly young. I still feel there's a lot to contribute. So I, so I think we have to go backwards in this conversation to the day I left the practice. And it was, it was, it, it was about one year before I planned to leave, but I'd always had a rule in all of my years of practice, in my 35 years, some odd years of practice of the law, which was, I'm going to do this as long as I'm having fun. The day it stopped being fun, I quit. It, and it took my wife, my Sharon, she's sort of the wise sage in my life. And I always, always seem to do better when I listen to her advice, because I happen to be a very stubborn person. But she was watching me for the two years after the collapse of Tina Blake, and we can get to that either not at all or later. But she watched me in my new role as counsel at Denton's and she, and she was the one who pointed out, listen, you're, you know, you're not having fun. You seem very angry. It doesn't look like you like what you're doing anymore. So why are you doing this? And part of what, what I was, why I was doing it was because I didn't know what else I could do. And that's when uh, the wheels started turning, which, which revolved around, okay, if I promised myself, I I was only going to do things that I like to do. So it was time to do something else. And I had 
slowly come to like writing. So, which again, I would not have guessed. On the other hand, I would not have guessed that I'd ever be a film finance lawyer. I would not have guessed. I would certainly have told you point blank, I will never be the managing partner of a law firm. Only a complete fool would do that. And so, and, and in the same way, in my mid forties, I concluded after reading the English patient, I would never write a book because I just, it was obvious to me, I didn't have the talent to do it. So, but here I was writing something that was turning into a book, which was pretty much the, the memoir. And it was challenging. It was difficult, much like pretty much anything else I'd taken on on in the course of my career. And slowly but surely, uh, and it was interesting, as I was in, in my final year at Denton's, I found I, I enjoyed walking out of the office, going home, turning on the computer, and trying to figure out what I was going to either write next or edit. So I was actually starting to get pleasure from the thing I thought I couldn't do. So it was, uh, it, it was just a, a series of events, but it became clear that uh, writing was going to be the same kind of challenge that designing tax shelters were, uh, which is what I did for 25 years in, in the film finance business, which was very much spending most of my time hitting my head against the wall, getting nowhere. And then every once in a while, I saw something created an opening and that, that created some work for everybody for another few years, but it was always back against the wall. So I, so I had discovered in writing what I'd never thought possible, which was I'd find something else to do that was, in some respects, very sim similar to what I really loved doing when I was practicing law. Nice. And so was, you mentioned that Sharon had mentioned or described you as being angry, was, did you pick up the pen sort of in almost a therapeutic way? Like, was, was writing the first book, was that in some way a response to, frankly, the trauma of what happened with Heenan Blakey? Well, oh, Breakdown wasn't supposed to be a book. Okay. Just, just to be <laughs> what clear. was it supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was just supposed to be uh, my, uh, my ramblings to, to process my anger. You know, you, what you spent 35 years building when it collapses underneath you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, everybody, everyone who was there towards the end went through something, some people worse than others. Uh, and I, I sublimated all those feelings while it was going on because, the, the, you know, my goal was survival, try and save the organization, fight to the end, you know, whatever you do, don't deal with the feelings, don't, don't process, do not descend into emotion. You know, my task was, you just need to get through this. You're such a guy, Norm. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know, some of the people who were processing the emotions were having nervous breakdowns. So yeah. that, that wasn't necessarily wasn't a, an option. <laughs> a good alternative. Right. Uh, so this was my way. So the, the idea was begin to process. And literally after I'd written and I, I just began to write and, and the writing was, you know what, I'm just going to write what the last day at Hina Blakey felt like, which ended up becoming chapter one of the book. And, but once I'd finished writing that, it was sort of, okay, what next? So I said, well, you know what? I always thought about keeping a diary when I was managing partner. And of course I never did. Uh, and then I said, you know, I'm just going to write pretty much. I'm going to write the story of my life I'm, and not, mm -hmm. not as a book. I'm just going to write something so I can, so maybe it'd be something for my kids or my grandchildren to, you know, to see, you know, what, what did he do with his life for right. those, for those 35 years? And that's how I started. But the notion that it was going to turn into a book uh, didn't really occur to me until until I had a couple of chats. One was with a film producer client of mine, Bob Cooper in Los Angeles, who mm. who you know, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob has been a successful producer in Los Angeles. So I actually sent him a couple of chapters down and uh, he sent back script notes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, 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 and I can tell you draft one was 750 handwritten pages because I still hadn't taught myself to type right. anything more than a few paragraphs adequately. Like I right. could do it very slowly, but it was not how I was going to write this. So I, uh, draft one became sort of the retype once the abscess in my finger went away. Right. After writing, literally, I wrote every day for six months for two and a half hours. So I developed the, the writing habit through this, but again, not with the goal of writing a book. It was more just, uh, okay, this, it was actually starting to be fun. Right. You know, coming home at, at night, writing five pages, closing the book, going to bed. And uh, so I called uh, Michael Levine, another fellow you know, mm-hmm. uh, who had retired from practice and had become just strictly an agent. And I said, listen, I've, I've worked on this. Uh, it's 750 pages. What do you think? Do you think it might, might make a, a book? So he said, uh, he said, I only have one piece of advice for you, Norman. Yes, it might make a book, but at 750 pages, no one is that interested in your life. Call, call me back when it's under 300. That is when we went from just taking my life story, which literally was stories uh, about the firm, stories about my life in the film industry, feelings uh, that were that are were uh, so angry they were unpublishable, only because I would have been sued probably for forty or fifty million dollars by the people who had it, <laughs> right. um, and of course, and and all kinds of breaches of client confidentiality that obviously couldn't go in, into the into into the public domain. So what I'm hearing is there's a director's cut of the book out there. We're just waiting for it to be it's released. Sitting, <laughs> it's sitting in my in the vault. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> to be, to be opened only after I die. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> had writing been something that you had done when you were younger? Like, had you ever written and then it was something that you, that you should sort of discarded along the way, you know, what with a career and with, you know, a family and stuff, or, or was, were you new to writing once this, this project kind of uh, revealed itself? Well, I would describe myself as, uh, you know, the, and really until the end of grade 10, you know, if I got a C in composition, it was a good mark. Okay. Uh, the, notion, the notion that I would ever get it. And in fact, one of, one of the things that gave me great pleasure when I published, um, not so much breakdown, but when I published the first fiction mm-hmm. was that my, my grade 11 high school teacher I knew would never have believed this possible. Right. <laughs> Simply because my writing certainly through grade 10 was atrocious. But once I got to law school, and in my early years of practice, I had to write a lot. I, I became the, the speech writer and the article writer for my boss, who was the head of the tax department. And uh, in some respects, I, he was blind to any logic because he, he'd, uh, English was his second language, but he, but he was very proficient in English. But I, I would submit work to him and draft articles, and, and he, would, he would maybe make one or two edits in, in the thing. Unfortunately, uh, I had other mentors at the firm who would cut my work to shreds, but and and edit and edit. But I, I wrote a lot, and probably in my first seven or eight years of practice, I wrote prolifically, uh, but all technical material. Mm-hmm. And so that certainly developed my writing skills to a point. But certainly, if you told me, even as I said, even in my mid forties, if you if you told me, do you think you'll ever write fiction? I would have had a good laugh. Like it just it wasn't. It wasn't in the cards. It wasn't possible. 
Right. I read good authors. I wasn't one. Of them. And so how do you make that transition then? Because you, so you write what eventually becomes breakdown, you release it, it, it's successful. You're clearly engaging in a very different kind of undertaking when you are writing fiction. So how did, how did the guy who said, you know, Michael Andache is a great writer. I could never sort of, you know, achieve that, that caliber of writing. How does that guy decide, actually, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, well, one, once again, my wife, after she'd read a, an advanced, a very advanced draft to break, break down, looked at it, uh, and she said, my goodness, you can write. <laughs> she said, why don't you try writing fiction? And, and again, I fought her over that for a few months. And finally, uh, she said, well, go read some Shakespeare for in inspiration. I, I don't know why she decided Shakespeare in her wisdom. Uh, so I went back and I read a bunch of plays the fun of it and, I, and literally I walked in one day and I said okay I, I've got it I'm going to write uh, Othello the M&A lawyer and literally uh, I, so I, I knew who my characters were going to be I was going to take them from the play I was going to modernize them set them in Manhattan and I was just going to follow the plot line and see see where it led me and, and in fact in, in the original draft of the book I was just getting ready to to have uh, Othello kill Othello the lawyer kill Desdemona strangle her and I told Sharon, I was about to write that. She said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? And she said, because your leading man cannot kill your leading lady. Nobody's going to buy that book. I said, but Shakespeare did it. And she looks at me and she smiles. She says, Norm, you're not Shakespeare yet. I love so, it. She, she's got a future as an editor is what I'm hearing. Oh, here. no kidding. <laughs> but she, she actually won't read any. She won't read any of my books while I'm writing them. Okay. <laughs> Somebody once said, never sleep with your editor. So uh, that's good advice. That. but, uh, so that's, so I, so I walked in again a week later and I said, okay, I've, you know, I've decided, okay, I've now decided I'll kill somebody else. Uh, I went off and from the first third of the book, I, I wrote the murder scene. Then I had to decide who did it. And, and literally I wrote the end of the book and then I came back and filled in all the blanks. Uh, so, and that's how I wrote my first book. And so I was very excited probably on about draft 52, I thought it was good enough to send back to the editor who edited Breakdown. And I send it out to her and I'm very proud of myself because I think just as credible as Breakdown is, although it needs more dialogue. And so, I, you know, kind of worked my way through all that. So I send it out to her and we've, we have now a very solid working relationship and she knows she can tell me anything. And so she, so rather than sending me back any notes, she says, why don't we talk? So we get on the phone uh -oh. <laughs> and she says, uh, and she says, Norm, she said, I think you've done a very credible job. She said, the story is interesting. And if you want to be regarded as a very good amateur, this is, this is okay. And, and, and I, I'm pretty sure she know, knew that was the stake that she was driving through my heart at the moment. Uh, and it took me probably close to a week to pick myself off the floor and stop, stop the self-pity. But the conversation ended with her saying, here, if you want to write fiction, really, she said, there are there are all kinds of skills you have to learn that you don't know. So, and she said, you know, pol more politely than I'm about to say it, but you don't know how to write dialogue. You don't know how to follow a story arc. She said, and then the final one that really killed me because I've got male and female characters. She said, you know, when I read Breakdown, it was very clearly written with a very strong point of view because it was yours. Mm -hmm. She said, and I'm reading this, these seven characters in your book. I can't remember one name from the other because frankly, Norm, they all sound like you. <laughs> <laughs> cast so, of norms <laughs> the, cast, the cast of norms so she said you, you've got to learn something about that so she said why don't you start by reading fiction for dummies 
She said, it, mm. it's, it's actually a better book than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Just to give you a sense of things like story arc and how to set scenes, character development, uh, voice, point of view, uh, none of which I'd ever heard of. Right. So forget about it, I didn't know how to do it. I, I didn't even, like, I, I knew so little about this. And now I've kept, you know, right behind me on my bookshelf, uh, I've kept that, that first manuscript that I had, you know, typed up and, and sent out to her because every, so every once in a while I pick it up because it, it's actually quite horrible from, from the perspective now of somebody who actually learned how to do these skills. And she, and the other thing I did, and I didn't need anybody's prompting was I started dissecting my favorite authors. So I would read not for the, not for the, from the perspective of reading a book, but I'd sit down, I read a chapter of my favorite author, watch how the dialogue developed, watch what the author was doing and started to understand how as a reader, the author was manipulating me. And I started to listen to the inner voice in my head as I was reading. And, and I hadn't paid attention to it before, but you know, when you read a really good book, the author is actually in a dialogue with you. And it's all kinds of tricks off. Good authors know that they're playing right. when they get you to think along with them and to think forward and to guess what's going to happen next or to read a line and, and ask yourself, why did the author write that? And you, you know, you close the book and, and you, and you find out, sometimes you'll find out four lines later. Sometimes you'll find out four paragraphs later. And sometimes the author will make you wait till the end of the book. So that's interesting. I mean, that, that's a very kind of deliberate approach to learning, right? It, it, like if you're taking, so had you been an avid reader yes. sort of your entire life? Okay. And, and, and with broad interests. So, right. Um, but that must be a very different experience uh, reading it, sort of dissecting it in that way, like reading it with a critical eye, not sort of as a critical reader, but as a critical creator, even, uh, were there authors that you had previously enjoyed who, as a result of reading it with that new, I don't want to say John to style, but with that more informed eye, where you're like, no, nah, this guy actually doesn't really know what he's doing or did everybody come through? Okay. In the end, uh, no, no, uh, pretty much everybody. Well, most of the reader, most of the authors that, that I that I, I I tend to avoid, and I'll put it in quotation marks. Schlock. Okay. I, I have trouble reading that stuff. Uh, but but every so often I'll I'll pick I'll pick up some very popular books just to see what the authors are doing, mm -hmm. and I'll I'll look at it and I'll say you know they may be way more popular than I am, but I think I actually write better than they do. Right. Uh, but and most readers don't care. Most readers you know, and and this was the 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 final editor on Ophelia, which is my second novel. Uh, who really, he was, he was the toughest editor I've ever written for, continued to remind me it's, it's about story, story, story. Readers want a story. They'll, for, they'll forgive anything else, but you get too prosy. And most of the readers will do what I do when, when authors get too prosy, even good authors, which is I just, I'll skim it. Mm -hmm. Like, give me too much description. My brain, I don't have the kind of brain that can read the description of what the alley looks like. Mm -hmm. and then constructed in my head, or he went three blocks north and two blocks, you know, some, someone who takes me on, on the journey of the character. Right. Uh, I can't understand it. Or someone who'll give you a, a really, I, I still remember uh, one author who went into great detail as to how a camera worked. <laughs> and it was clear to me, clear to me as the, as the aspiring author reading it, okay, the author is establishing himself as an expert in cameras. All right, he's obviously done a lot of research on cameras, but like two lines in, what do, what do I care? Or Victor Hugo, who writes an entire chapter describing Notre Dame Cathedral. 
right? And I'm, you know, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And all I'm thinking of is, you know, just show me a picture. <laughs> You're a visual learner. Because yeah. <laughs> so, so the one thing I do know is if I can't, if I can't as a reader read that stuff, then I can't as a writer write that stuff. Okay. Which, and are which, you which able... isn't a bad thing. <laughs> right, right. I mean, write what you enjoy, right? I, I think that's that's well, always... and also what you're capable of. So, and, and every so often I'll try it, <laughs> right? And and I watch, you know, the tricks are what's been common, and you know, and, and and little tricks that I picked up along the way that sort of modern writers use very few adverbs. They use a lot mm -hmm. of adjectives. They'll use adjectives completely the wrong way. In fact, they'll sometimes use adjectives as, as adverbs, which is a trick I've picked up, which is which is interesting because it makes you as the reader wonder, oh, okay. Like an inanimate object can't get angry, right. but if I describe it as angry, then some, then I, what I understand is I'm, I'm triggering something in your brain to think about, okay, it's, it's clearly not the object that's angry. It's the character thinking, seeing anger everywhere she looks. Right. And again, you know, so, so these little things that uh, uh, as I became a more astute reader, Say, oh, okay. I see what the author's doing here. I can do that. Well, it's pretty much, you know, I, I like to, I like to call it, I borrow because I, I mean, I've started borrowing from Shakespeare, so I might as well borrow from everybody. And, and when I started writing, I, I, I really thought while I'm, while I'm in the process of writing, I don't want to be reading anybody else's fiction. It's just going to be confusing to my head. And in fact, I've decided it's just the opposite. While I'm writing now, I will read all kinds of things uh, from interesting authors because sometimes I'll read something for example, I, I read a chapter in a Linwood Barclay book and, and I took it right to the end of the book. And I said, wow, I said, this device is going into my book. And, nice. and it, it went into my book so much that I called my editor up and I said, listen, uh, this was in Odell's Fall, the first novel. I said, this is what I need to do. The, the book's, it, it's just too overly simplistic for me. She said, what you're doing is going, you know, you'll have to rewrite the end of the book. I said, I got that. She said, you're also gonna have to rewrite the beginning of the book. <laughs> And I said, I got that. She said, and you're also going to have to rewrite all kinds of scenes in the middle of the book. And I said, yeah, but it'll make the book better. Right. <laughs> I like that. So, so you're in service of the art. That's good. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and there's one more thing. And I was thinking about this this morning. When we studied Salinger, yeah, I think it was grade 11. It, my English teacher drove me insane because her thesis was that every word that goes into the book has a meaning mm -hmm. and that the author chooses the words very carefully. Uh, with particular meaning inside to trigger particular images or ideas in the reader. And, and pretty much every sentence from a good author is written with that in mind. And as a grade 11 student, and of course being 16 and, and smarter than everybody, you know, my, my gut reaction was, this is, that's bullshit. I mean, the, the writer's writing the story and he can't possibly be thinking about every word that's going in. And, and this, this intent of attributing meaning and looking for the metaphors and mm -hmm. trying to link everything together is preposterous. Right. You're overthinking As, things. <laughs> yeah, I, but, and the, the irony is that's the way I write. Okay. <laughs> so, so I will go back and, and, and not a single image goes into my book that doesn't tie to something I want to say. So, and, and I'm sure, and I know because, you know, I, I've watched, uh, I've read the, the theory of some many other writers uh, that, you know, most writers can't afford to do that because it's way too time consuming. But for me, uh, I start from the perspective of that, and it's kind of like the, you know, again, it's like the tax shelters. You get one shot at doing it right. And if you mistake, if, if you make a mistake, you're finished and your career's over. Mm. So you can't afford any. Now that's a bit ridiculous for, for writing because most, 
readers are not going to catch most of the things I put in my book. But I figure, okay, so it'll take me an extra year to write it. It's bad business, but it's going to be out there. You know, once it's out, it's out there forever. So if I can get it slightly better than I want to do it. And so in terms of your process, are you, because I, I remember reading that Stephen King, for example, uh, who's a writer whose work I, I quite liked when I was growing up. Um, but in any event, his pro, he's a headlong writer in this. He doesn't outline. He just sort of starts writing the story and just kind of bulls his way through to the end of the story. And the story, it's almost like he's tapping into some external source. The story is kind of telling itself through him. Uh, are you, how do you write? Like, are you kind of very deliberative? Do you outline? Do you start with the ending and then work your way back to first, the beginning? Okay. So first, I'm very jealous of Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, you and me he, both. <laughs> he just sits down and he goes and he can right. just, and he, you know, he, and he had to come up with a pen name because he was writing too many books a year. And, you know, the publishers said, you know, Stephen King, we only want you publishing one book a year. So, he, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the way the ideas come to him is incredible. So uh, I'll never be that. Uh, but I too, every time I sit down and try and outline things, it's a complete waste of my time. I end up falling asleep, literally. I, and I've always been the type that can fall asleep in my chair. So that will do it to me as much as anything else, like studying for exams, for example. Uh, well, I find what works for me is, uh, and this is for draft one. So I'll, I'll take, I'll decide who's in a scene. I have no idea. Like I'll know, I'll know how my book ends and I'll know how my book begins. And that's pretty much it. And I'll know who the characters are or some of the characters because some of them will get at it along the way. So I'll start a scene and I'll say, okay, here are the characters in the scene. This is how the scene begins. And this is how the scene ends. I have no idea what's going to happen in the scene. I just know how it's going to begin and end. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, when I say I'll outline, I'll say I'll make a list of four scenes. And it's no more than uh, you know, these two characters in the kitchen, these two characters at the football game, and, it's, you know, and so on and so on. But that's all I know. And then I just, and I just go. Uh, and then I'll come back and I'll rewrite and I'll rewrite later on. But, you know, once, once the scenes fit together and the story has been told, then I go back to the beginning. You know, the, the hardest part in terms of writing, and again, I can't speak for Stephen King, but for me, the hardest part uh, 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 of a book is figuring out where it starts. Like even after the story is written, it's I have this huge debate with myself. Is this the right place to start the story? And, uh, and, and I gave, for example, when I, when I was, had done an early draft of Odell, I gave it to uh, uh, Bobby Rotenberg, who's, a, who's become a friend of mine. He's a mystery writer based in Toronto. And uh, I think he's working on his seventh or eighth book now. So I know he didn't have a lot of time to read it. So he, you know, we sat down for coffee. I would still say I was still in my, he's on his way from amateur stage. And there was very little annotation until we got to about page 18. And all he put in the margin was, I think the book should start here. And try as I might, it didn't matter how much I wrote, how much I edited, how much I rewrote, kept coming back to that point. And that's exactly where the book starts, really? right in that spot. <laughs> I, you know, I, so I actually, I have a couple of uh, Robert Rottenberg books mm -hmm. next to me here. He, he is a real craftsman. He's a, he's a great writer. I really enjoy his stuff. Yeah. I mean, to me, one of the obvious kind of questions that I've always had about this work that you do, because clear, clearly you have this creative impulse that you're, you've harnessed. I mean, you've written two novels already. Uh, you've written two nonfiction books. There, there's more on the way. We'll talk about that uh, shortly. But why writing? Like, why books? I mean, especially in the context of somebody who was a film and television lawyer for, you know, three decades, uh, if not longer. Like, okay, well, why, the, why not film and TV? <laughs> All right. Well, my, my and I, it's not that I haven't been offered, 
but uh, just just to be clear, in my entire 30-year career in film and television, I read exactly two scripts. Mm. All right, I was never involved in the creative. I thought that was, you know, I thought the dumbest thing you could do uh, as a life pursuit was creative because, like, how do you make money? And, you, and the, the short answer is you don't. There's there's actually more money in script writing if you can be successful than in book writing. Book writing unless you're a big name, doesn't do very much for you. But if you, know, can, get, if you can land a television script or, or sell a movie, uh, that's another story. But I figured from a movie script perspective, and I thought about it a few times, apart from anything else, it's a new skill I've got to learn how to do. You know, I, I, I know exactly how I would write you know, these two novels as movie scripts, but I'm thinking, then what? It's, you know, it's going to sit in a pile. And, and I, know what the, I know exactly what the odds are of any script ever getting produced, and they're very, very low. You know, unless you've sold a million books, and then they're very, very high. So, so that was part of it. Uh, and television, writing television scripts just didn't interest me, uh, and only because I figure you write it, people watch it, never see it again. In, you know, they're entertained for a few minutes. And really, what I prefer, and and ultimately, and it's, and I get this back from my readers. What I live for as an author is a reader saying, after I close the book, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that's what I'm at. As an author, that's what I'm after call me a purist and you know I guess I, I, I can afford to be but that's you know if I'm going to put it out there in the world I want to be proud of it. I don't care what frankly if I'm proud of it that's good enough you know you know some and I, I, I read a lot from authors who say like how do you handle the one-star review or the uh, and I've had a few readers of, of my books on Goodreads who've written publicly meh and I can actually hear <laughs> can hear them saying it, meh, uh, I, and I actually prefer the four and five star reviews, I have to admit. But for me, it, it's way more important that I, you know, that I, and I do it, I do this from time to time. I know some authors will say, once they've written the book, they will never look at it again. And I actually enjoy picking up a book, reading a chapter and saying to myself, I can't believe I'm capable of writing that. And that's, so it's, I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. And I mean, how do you handle those negative reviews because I, I again going back to what i said at the beginning make, i mean you, you make me laugh you make me laugh even to ask that question i was the managing partner of a law firm I, right for 16 years. <laughs> and i'm used to lawyers walking into my office and telling me everything i'm doing wrong so so you develop a you know so, so, so it's just a review it's you, you develop a fairly thick skin and you know we've and we've talked about writing and i want to make it clear it's it's a, a, it's a large part of what I do, but it's not the only part I do because otherwise I think I'd go insane, you know, sure. because writing is very lonely. But for me, you know, the rest of my time, which is spent li literally uh, publicly uh, mentoring where, where I can and really giving back to a community that was so good to me for so many years. And I feel, you know, I feel I must. So, you know, I mentor, I'm on LinkedIn in a, a lot. And you meant, and, and in some respects, that's kind of where I open my soul to the, not just, not just the strengths, but the, the weaknesses that we all have and how we deal with it and how you get through it. You know, sometimes how you get through the day, how you get through the career, how you get through them, you know, the mistakes you make. I, I think that's, it's fundamentally Im important to mentor young lawyers in just, you know, how to deal with the day-to-day -day of survival. And, and I get a lot of, you know, I get a, an awful lot of pleasure from that. Just, I did a mentoring session with a lawyer for a law firm. I, I do some mentoring for a couple of law firms. And he's somebody, he was somebody I had eyeballed as having potential a couple of years ago. And we work, we'll work together occasionally and all. And watching 
his development. I, I work with a, uh, a partner uh, in, a, in a law firm in Vancouver. And again, it's, it's one of those, we connected completely out of the blue. In fact, I just sent her a note saying, which I do from time to time, I'll see some uninteresting profile on, online. I'll just say, we should talk. And we started talking, began a dialogue. And, uh, and I, I enjoy those moments where she just gets on the phone and says, here's my problem. You know, I can unravel that literally in about five minutes. You know, I, I sit down, it, is, it may be an hour phone call, but through the through the hour phone call, uh, I know in me, you know, I know after about five minutes what my advice is going to be. And so generally the same thing, which is you, you know, by expressing the problem, you already know what you have to do. You're just afraid to do it. Right. You just need that so, external validation as to what path you but, already know uh, you're going to take. You know, so so as a complete package, that's where I get my satisfaction. So it's, it's not just the writing. Right. But I, I mean, just for for anybody who's not familiar i mean your your mentoring and your your leadership in the legal community i think is in part informed by your writing right because you you i mean you've written take charge which for anybody who hasn't read it is actually it, it's an excellent book i think it's it's one of the few sort of professional advice books out there that that i've read that has some really valuable insights into it and ha has takeaways that you can actually sort of implement and and, and mm -hmm. garner results from so kudos on on that book and i Thank know you. there's there's a sequel that's coming uh, or at least another book along those lines. But when you're looking at your career, your life, your writing activities now, do you separate them out into sort of fiction and nonfiction and sort of, you know, you're going to spend a few months doing fiction and a few months doing nonfiction or, or is it all sort of a seamless whole? How does that play out in uh, your day-to-day -day -day life? I'd say black holes are probably better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting because the, uh, I treat the nonfiction as my reward because mm -hmm it's way easier to write. You know, I can, I can knock off a nonfiction start to finish in six to eight months. Tips for the interviewer, which is my, my giveaway book for students on how to interview better. Uh, literally, I, I had this idea. My goodness, I, you know, I can do this in a week. And literally, I got it out start to finish. I didn't even hire a third party yet. I said, I can edit it myself. I'm more disciplined than I used to be as a writer. And literally, I went start to finish on that book in seven days. So it's my reward for writing fiction. So sometimes I will actually withhold it from myself until, okay, no, you have to write two more chapters before you can, <laughs> before you can open the nonfiction. <laughs> Amazing. So what stories are you still looking to tell? Like, what can we expect to hear from Norman McCall in the future? Well, on the fiction side, I've created some very interesting characters in the first couple of books. So I'm looking at, right now I'm, I am hitting my head against the wall writing uh, Macbeth. Right now, it, you know, I'm tempted to write it around control of a law firm, but I've started it around the presidency of the United States, and I could go either way on this. Mm. Uh, but it's sort of the husband and wife team, and I've decided to make Macbeth uh, the woman this time instead of the man, and her husband will be Lady Macbeth. But you know, I right now I've married it with the two detectives that have that that show up in every book, and I've taken one of the lawyers. I've created a law firm called TGO and which is a great reservoir for, for legal talent, one of the best firms in the world, actually, um, international. And uh, so every so often, I'll either create a lawyer or borrow a lawyer from a previous book and bring them back. And, and people say this, writers say this about writing. The, the ease of writing series is that you know your characters and you can put them into any situation and, you know, and you, you know exactly what they'll do, which is a great help. And it allows you to develop and spin them off. And so that that's... That's what I'm working on right now on the fiction side. But I'd like to, I created in Odell's Fall, I created uh, a character called the Turk, who is one of America's leading activist investor, investors, uh, modeled after 
a few people I've met along the way. Uh, and he's this larger than life, self-absorbed character who happens to be a billionaire. And so the plan is, as soon as I finish Macbeth, is to start writing that one um, as a Richard III. So, as, so which, which meant when I was really defining him in Ophelia, because he shows up as a, at the end of the book in Ophelia, uh, I, 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 I gave him a hunchback. <laughs> And it's going to be right now. The the, the notion is I, I pick one of my uh, craziest film producer clients, and I'm using him as a model, as a guy who sits on the board of one of the Turk's companies, and the Turk wants him to do it, the movie of his life, his life story. So I'm just thinking it's going to be this this crazy, you know, this crazy iconic character who reveals all his secret weaknesses to the film producer, who's, his, who's himself also just, just as crazy. Right. And they both think it's completely normal. <laughs> so, so your life- well, I, don't know, I don't know if it works or not. <laughs> right. Your life as a practicing lawyer is really informing all of your writing activities, both on the nonfiction side and the fiction side. I like well, every so often when I need to, when I need to get a character, I'll go into, into the bank because uh, there were some of the most interesting lawyers I ever work with. If I, you know, if I told, if, if I pulled back the curtain on their personalities, you'd say that, no, there's no way that somebody that bright could be that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good, uh, let's, let's finish with that. There's no way something that bright could be that crazy. That's like, the, I, I feel like that's a good tagline for this entire series of novels that you're writing. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Amazing. They may all be saying that I, I, and I still remember as managing partner, uh, I was, I was sitting there one particularly difficult day. I, I had three or four meetings and, and it was all completely different subjects with, with different partners about different issues. After the third partner walked out, I said, why is everybody so unreasonable? And the light bulb goes off. And I said, I just had three partners leave my office thinking, why is he so unreasonable? <laughs> Amazing. Well, Norm, thanks for taking the time to chat today. That was uh, that was incredibly illuminating, and I look forward to to reading more of these stories as you as you write them and and let them out into the wild for us to to read them. So, thanks again. Thanks, Bob. This has been great. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.